Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, streaming worldwide on Power Talk 1210. Go to powertalk1210.com and stream all of our live local programming. It is an honor to have you with us today. And the cat I'm about to introduce now, one of the most prolific melodic improvisers of our time. He's been doing it for the last half century. He continues to do it. With younger cats, both here and abroad, Dave Liebman, welcome to the Jake Feinberg hey, Show. Hey, Jake, how you doing? How are you, brother? I'm good, bro. What's, uh, what do you got there? It's one o'clock there, quarter to one? We are, yeah, we're on Pacific time. Okay, yeah. all right. I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, I feel like your driving force today is working with younger cats, and I, want, yep. I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, how you grew up learning tunes by ear as opposed to cats now who are learning to read and they can't identify songs through ear and therefore their ears are locked and therefore that's why improvisation by not everybody but compared to your generation improvisation has been stifled because we are no longer learning by ear well we are probably the last generation to, in general, with exceptions, not be schooled formally as they are now, as you point out. And, of course, when you're going to do school, uh, anything that finds its way to the conservatory has got to be organized and made uh, presentable and comprehensible to the most amount of students. And reading is a quick way, <laughs> let's put it this way, it's a quick way to get to it. Um, it's different. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say necessarily ear is better than reading it or reading is better than ear. Because in the end, you need both, and uh, the musicians these days, I mean, in many of the places, they do take care of both ends of it. Of course, the amount of material that a young musician is um, confronted with, with 100 years of music now, of jazz, and, you know, the nature of a, a school means get through things quickly, and uh, reading is a definitely a quicker way. And you have to remember, in the former times, even, I mean, I'm a, sort of at the end, was at the end of it in the 70s, when guys played six nights a week, three sets a night, and mostly played the same tunes, uh, you had a chance to learn things by ear. But this, you know, we live in a different period, and uh, speed is of the essence. Yeah, you're right. Speed is of the essence. I just, I'm curious in your leadership style. Do you, how do you get cats to slow down? Well, well, they got to get the, you know, they got to play. And that's, in the end, I mean, whatever we teach or say is really secondary to the process of being on the stage with, hopefully, with somebody that's more experienced, which is what I provide to these younger musicians. And when they get on stage, they you know, start to see what timing is, what drama is, storytelling, inflection, attitude, blah, 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 all kinds of stuff that you really can't teach. You can say, you can put a record on from the past and say, so-and-so exhibited this and that, and, you know, use of space, use of dynamics, etc. But until the actual student gets on a, on a stage in front of people, and hopefully with musicians of another generation, uh, they're not going to really get it. And unfortunately these days, with masters pretty much, that period of jazz pretty much done, uh, most of the young musicians play with young musicians. And uh, that has its advantages and its disadvantages, and experience, of course, is lacking in that respect. Um, when you were coming of age, one of the L's on my show was lineage, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, how far back you went. Again, 
just for the point of reference here, there were no jazz schools. Jazz wasn't taught in academia. Um, and so, therefore, you were woodshedding <clears throat> on the bandstand, and there were tons of venues to play at. But, you know, I was transcribing my interview with Lenny White. I've done a couple with Lenny, and he um, he talked about Cats uh, only going back now. Cats not going back far enough, basically. Uh, if you if you're in the 2000s, you go back to the 90s, or in yeah. the, you know, in the, in the 90s there was this this rebirth or rediscovery of of this amazing bastion of hard bop post bop that you were in the 90s but they didn't go back past that and you have to go to these source points and i want to know when you were coming of age and trying to develop your own individual sound aside from playing with your peers who did how far back did you go in the lineage of music and how did you access that information well accessing it wasn't as easy as now obviously we can press a button and have a history of music in front of us on a phone um and you had to, you know, search out. I mean, you know, there was, you know, Louis Armstrong was recorded, Leslie Young was recorded, etc. Uh, I know for myself, I was really not familiar with uh, pre-bop at all. Um, Lenny Tristano, one who I studied one year with, made me have to sing Leslie Young solos with Count Basie, which comes from the late 30s, of course. And that was uh, my first sort of formal introduction into pre-bop. I mean, you know... In those days, if you didn't have somebody laying on you, you didn't really get it because you, didn't, you know, there was no formal, again, no formal teaching, as you say. So you got it by hitting this. You know, maybe somebody said, "Oh, have you heard this? Did you ever hear this Duke Ellington uh, record, Jungle Music, whatever? You know, <laughs> uh, Harlem uh, Air Shift, or whatever, you know, whatever these titles were." And they say, "No," I say, "Well, you ought to check it out. You ought to check it out." And that's kind of how we did it. Uh, they now actually, and I mean, I'm envious of the way they get it now because they get the history of jazz from the, you know, soup to nuts. And it's up to them, of course, whether they do it diligently or not. That's their business. But they are definitely presented with the history of jazz and, you know, graded on it or marked on it. So, you know, they have to do a certain extent of it. Um, I think there's a, a problem that for them that is there's too much material. Um, mm -hmm. It's like trying to do a history of classical music and play it and write it. I mean, it's pretty hard to say you're going to sell it Handel or Haydn and work your way up to Stockhausen and, you know, and then have any time left over to find out who you are. So... We have a little bit of a time problem in the amount of material that's uh, digested, but um, I think you're right, though. Probably most guys go back for 10, 10 years or so, and then they, that's their beginnings. But if a guy is serious and wants to really continue on in the music, eventually they do end up covering most of the bases. You know, they just have more to do now and um, a lot more to do that they have to learn now. Well, I think that you're hitting on some. We're talking to Dave Liebman here, who's a an educator. His passion now is is to is to be part of the lineage, a link in the chain to future generations. But this is a cat who, uh, you know, I'm just going to go back here. Uh, and I've interviewed 500 cats, Liebman, and uh, I'm going back to my my interview here with Lenny White, and he says uh, uh, Dave Liebman and I go back forever. Dave used to have a loft on 19th Street in Manhattan in the building. In the building, Chick, back, huh? Chick lived in the middle floor, and I think Dave Holland lived on the bottom floor. We would go there. Yeah, reverse that. Yeah, that was the reverse. But they were there. Let me let me let me just finish. Let me just miles. Yeah, let me let me finish this quote. We would go there and have jam sessions at Dave's loft all the time. Michael and Randy Brecker, George Cable, Steve Grossman, a lot of guys. We would have jam yeah. sessions, and they would all take mescaline and play or smoke weed. I didn't take part in it, but I was around it all the time. There was some great creative music that came from that. So you use, use the word serious. Now, I, I dig serious musicians. But the point is that you had, I, I want to know from you, 
ultimately we want cats to develop their own individual sound. And my question is this, you have all these creative cats in one building, you're having quote unquote jam sessions, improvising off a theme, and you're taking psychedelics, mescaline, weed. How much of that, those psychedelics played into your ability to lose your inhibitions and develop the Liebman sound? Because let's face it, you, you, don't, you can't tell the difference between cats today, but you could back well, then. Well, that's true. So just tell me, that's take me through cookie cutter stuff, yeah. Well, I mean, you're asking a whole bunch of questions. I mean, first of all, the role of drugs of any sort were to loosen, you know, I mean, besides just being young and ch- checking things out, that's kind of the nature of being young and, and I'm being artist and starting to find out what's going on. It did have something to do with relaxing you and opening up your uh, imagination, of course. But in the end, uh, the skills that you had to have, you know, they had to be honed and they had to be practiced and they had to be studied. And, of course, our jam sessions were the equivalent of now guys showing up for an ensemble at Arizona State, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Not quite the same atmosphere, not the same... Uh, it's not the same right. uh, geography, but, you know, guys playing in a situation where somebody brings in music or we play a stanza and so forth. And the truth is, in that period you're, des- you're describing, 69, 70, early 70s, uh, for the most part, those sessions that Lenny is talking about were free jazz. Uh, we were very enamored by the, the Coltrane's ascension and interstellar space. They really affected us. And, of course, Cecil Taylor and all that. And that was kind of what was hot then, you know, until fusions, you know, came in, and that's the early 70s. So you had guys playing completely free. I mean, I didn't know even that Coltrane recorded Blue Train. I mean, or Giant Steps. I mean, I started Coltrane and Impressions, although I saw it live many times. I didn't know his background. I didn't know he played with Miles in 55, 56. So, you know, this was a, a learning curve that you had to find out on your own um, with the help sometimes of other musicians, of your compatriots mostly. The older guys didn't talk much about the music. But getting your own style is a culmination of years of playing like others, mixing it together into a big soup, and eventually coming up with your own recipe for how it tastes. And that's uh, um, sometimes by hit or miss, by trial and error, by some thought. I mean, I did spend time thinking about what I should play, what I shouldn't play. And, of course, when I finally went to soprano saxophone for a 15-year period, stopped the tenor, that was a period when I couldn't really find my voice. So... There were circumstances that helped me to get there, and all of the above were part of the mix of getting to find out who you are musically. And and you do say one thing that's true. um, If you turn on jazz radio, it is hard to tell who's playing. That's for sure. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, and I'm just looking. To me, it also speaks. I mean, that's the point is that I'm not a musician. The show, my show really is about philosophy, wisdom, and love, but also sociology. And I say to myself, you had guys, you know, I mean, it was, you. T- I got a couple questions here. I This is very fascinating for me. You, a lot of the elders, you know, I was talking to Lester Chambers, uh, or no, it was Lenny White again, uh, t- talking about, you know, in the, in the African tribes, they didn't have books. So if you wanted to know about rhythms, you'd go ask an elder. But a lot of times, the, your, your elders, can you talk about how your elders, mentors, m- communicated with you? in a nonverbal fashion, but yet you were learning? Well, I was very fortunate to have me many mentors, but among the most well-known were Pete LaRocca, the drummer, and then Elvin Jones, and of course Miles. And uh, they had their, you know, each had their own particular way. Pete was quite an intellectual and very smart and could, could say things to you in detail. Um, Elvin, of course, was not, you know, that verbal about the music itself, but he was a very amazingly great, beautiful, you know, giving person. And what he, what he played was enough, you know. 
And of course, Miles said hardly anything. Um, we got, like, you, you kind of had to decipher the code. <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, these guys had their, it was just, look, it's, it's just saying sociology, and the truth is it was a subculture. I mean, it was a, a, a unique world, the jazz world, mostly African-American until the 60s, until the 70s, really. Um, and you were entering a whole other way of thinking, certainly speaking, and living, and making a living. If you, I mean, living, first of all, living circumstances, and making a living. And uh, there was a lot to have to be gleaned from just innuendo and nuance and your imagination. And I think those guys, I mean, they were kind of zen-like, even though I don't think they would ever, they may not even know what I'm talking about, but they would <laughs> You're say doing something. you good, man. Yeah, go ahead. Well, they would say something, and you, I mean, I still, I mean, I have, you know, I have my quotations from each of these guys that I, I use for teaching, you know, and I'll say, this is what I thought about it then, and this is how 10 years later, and 15, in the case of some of it, and 50 years later, this is how it appears to me. And of course, things like this change. I mean, they didn't say, play that, play this. They just said, do like I do, or watch me. And again, we did have more playing. And when you have the process of um, on, the, on the spot, in the moment, learning, and there's no substitute for that. There's nothing like that. I mean, everything else is, uh, any book, even listening to a record is a remote until you're on the stage and you're in the, in the heat of the battle and you're with the guy and you watch what he does. And of course, again, as each of them did give me words of different lengths, and, I mean, of different uh, uh, depths, I mean, you then take that home and say, what did he really mean by that? And you didn't go back and ask these guys. These were not, in, you know, this was not the scene. You just said, okay, thank you. Uh, let me think about this for the next 40 years. <laughs> that was... That was the way. And elders is exactly right. I mean, that's exactly who you go to. You go to those who experience and have been there before you and who are senior to you, and hopefully they'll be uh, generous enough to share their experience and their knowledge. And, of course, the ones I'm mentioning and, and many others were. Who is, who is the... In their way, they were generous. In, in their unique, um, very little spoken way, they were very generous. Um, who was the first cat? You said Pete who? Pete LaRocco was a drummer in the in the 60s, it was with Sonny Rollins culturally very well known. Oh my God, I can't believe you just dropped that name, because no, he was known as Late LaRocca. He would show up when he wanted to play. No, 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 he was <laughs> he was on the case, this guy. And uh, he eventually became a lawyer, and uh, he quit the business and became a lawyer. But over the years, I did play with him on different occasions. He was quite influential in my life. He was my first real heavy gig at 23 years old. Right, no, I wanted, and, uh, I wanted to say he's, uh, Joe Chambers mentioned him as one of the most underappreciated, oh, yeah. heaviest drummers uh, in the world. But I, yep. I was I was going back to my interview with with Buster Williams. Uh, uh, eventually, uh, Mickey Roker had to fill in with Herbie because uh, LaRocca right. was showing up at 10.30 at night. Uh, Herbie oh, said... That's, that's Roca. This was La Roca. La, no, obviously, but I'm saying... What I'm saying is that Buster and Mickey were playing with some woman singer, and Herbie had to have them... They would come over and check out Herbie's band. This is before M. Wandishi, but... They eventually had to play in the band because Ron Carter was playing on Broadway, and LaRocca wouldn't wouldn't show up till the second set. Herbie one night was like, he's like, Pete, why are you showing up late? And LaRocca's like, I don't feel like playing till right now. But that being said, he still had monster, he had monster technique. But I guess who helped you? I mean, can you talk about uh, an experience on the bandstand? Uh, I mean, you know, when I interviewed Dave Holland a couple years ago, we talked about obviously the story where Train would, when Miles hired Train, he would come up. Train kept walking up to him, saying, "What do you want me to play? What do you want me to play?" And Miles kept turning his back on him until Train finally realized he hired him to be himself. 
I mean, right. can you point to a moment with LaRocca or something that is, you know, that from your early career that was a seminal moment that did not that did not involve verbal banter? <clears throat> well, I mean, in general, if you're on the bandstand and if you're a good student, which I am, you're going to be observing everything that's going on physically, mentally, spiritually, of course, musically. Um, again, when you watch somebody play and you say, I need to do that, that is the message of the day. So without, I couldn't give you a specific, like, in, you know, June 14th, 1970 type thing, but in general, what I was, I knew that I was in a special, honored, and fortunate position to be on the stage with these people. So believe me, everything they did, I watched and imitated uh, w- without, you know, verbal guidance because I said, look at the way he played that or he did that or he said that. And then you go back and you think about it. And I think part of the forming of your own personality is how you hear something because you're not necessarily hearing it the way the guy said it. You might be hearing it in your own particular, peculiar way, which in, in the end becomes who you are. And uh, I mean, there were you know, many experiences with these three, and I'm naming because we did play a lot, where I would say, musically, well, look what he did, look at how he did it, or look at look at the tune, what tune did he call, why did he call that then, you know, I tried to follow everything I could from them, because I knew this was knowledge that was, you know, never going to happen again to me. Absolutely. Talking to Dave Liebman yeah. here on the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, I think that you joined, before Elvin, you were with Ten uh, Wheel Drive, is that right? Yes, a, a fusion horn band. One of during the horn period, Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Tower Power. That was this was a New York based band. Right, and I, I was. It's interesting because you were already really into uh, playing a lot of free free jazz and things like that. Why? Yes. Did, why did you? Uh, what was? How did you grow as a musician with that gig? <clears throat> with that power rock gig? Well, that became the way we were able to join, like work. In other words, I was teaching school. Uh, I wasn't yet jazz musician enough to make a living. I had gone to college. I finished college in, in history. But, uh, I mean, you know, you, you didn't... I mean, with those guys... What was that? Well, sorry, what was the, the question, Kate? Well, no, you know, it just you would already... A lot of cats uh, take gigs that I've talked to it, so they could stretch their ears. Oh, the, the, yeah, the yeah, why did, how did you grow? Well, that was a fusion gig, and it was, first of all, on salary. I, had, I could stop teaching. <laughs> I was the main soloist, which meant I did play a bit, because part of the horn band premise was that there were going to be impro- improvised solos. That was the beginning of fusion, meaning a rock beat with an improvised solo over it. And uh, that lasted about a year, and it led to another band that we, that some of the guys we broke off from Second Wheel Drive and started a new band, blah, blah, blah. Got signed by Motown, first white band on Motown, and then at that point is when Elvin hired me, so I had... I then moved back into jazz, but I mean, you do trace a, a road there that is from free jazz to a backbeat to uh, to Elvin Jones. I mean, and Miles Davis, which went back to the backbeat because of the style that we were doing on the corner in the seventies. Um, it was a period when you could play one day one way and the next day another way, uh, which I still do quite a bit because of my traveling. I I could have you know in, in one week three different settings that I play in. But the beginnings of doing that are really the late 60s into the 70s in my generation. Um, 
Lenny's a great example of that, Dave. They're all, everybody you would that you're naming are examples of people who might have played one way on Tuesday and a different way on Wednesday. And uh, that was a great, you know, that was the beginning of eclecticism becoming a style. Eclectic is usually a description. In this case, it became a way of looking at things. You were eclectic. You played rock one day, you played free jazz the next day. Next day, you played 20th century contemporary music, and then the fourth day, maybe you played bebop. So that was the period, and that was a great time because we really were able to learn a lot of different styles of which I've been able to, you know, uh, represent as my, as things I like over the years. I think that, uh, so you, but the point is that you were also, it was considered a profession. Eclecticism was professional. And, and what I'm getting at is, explain to me, for somebody who was born like myself in 1978, and this is, at this point, Liebman, full-on leader, uh, in Miles Davis fashion, bringing in cats like Tony Saunders and Chris Hayes and trying to extend that lineage. And uh, But explain to me how we've gone from Dizzy Gillespie being respected as a lawyer and a doctor would be to you have to pay to play. I mean, let's face it, Dave Liebman, you have a good reputation. You've had a, an amazing career. It, it might be more transient now. You play 26 gigs in 24 days or whatever. But the point is that you still have that gig. I mean, you have that name, okay? But how did we get to this point now where it's pay to play? I mean, to me, the it's music. Music as we move into this quantitative era of everything is quantitative. Quanti you can't quantify music. So how did we get to this point where all of a sudden that eclecticism that would be revered and respected went to, oh, uh, you can you can play a gig, but you got to pay. You're not. We're not going to pay you. You're talking about the present state of affairs, either yeah. being passing the hat around, playing for the dog. Absolutely, picture. yeah, yeah. Well, we have. I mean, you know, again, sociology and really our culture. Number one, the record business is completely over. Live music is, you know, I mean, there's there's just too many people doing this, and the market is completely flooded. And young guys will play for the door, as I do too. I mean, just to play. Um, jazz it was never a money making. Uh, uh, thing it was never a big big bucks, but it now it's completely gone back to like patronage if you can get it and uh, doing your own thing and hopefully somebody notices you and you get a review. I mean it's a terrible situation in what we're discussing in this respect. All these young, very in a lot of cases creative and certainly well educated guys who are coming out of all these music schools who we teach, who I teach at the Manhattan School of Music, or I just spent three days at Berkeley coming home yesterday. I mean we are turning out. You know, more and more equipped musicians for something that doesn't exist. This is a whole other question. I mean, we could, that's that's a different subject altogether. But it went there because the field got flooded, and the business devolved. And that's really the difference between, let's say, 1948 and 19, uh, 2008. It's a matter of quantity, the, the supply and demand, and uh, uh, unfortunately, the business and and people's attention span and uh, people, you know, having everything on the phone in front of them, every tune there in the world. I mean, it's there's it's a, it has to do with our culture, with, with what we're, the way the world is evolving now, with the computer and internet and all that old YouTube stuff. It's, well, uh, I mean, it's good and bad. I mean, the good the good part is that everybody is pretty sophisticated. If, if they want to be, they can really hear everything pretty quickly. And the young ones are mixing music together in a lot of very fascinating ways. Because I hear bands all over the world because of my education thing. On the other hand, there's no way for them to play. So. Right. No, and you just said you terrible dichotomy. Well, no, I mean, you've been whether you know it or not, you've been waxing poetic for the last half hour, and you just said something. You said, 
we're turning out musicians for something that doesn't exist. How do you feel about that? It's terrible. It's depressing. And when we guys, guys like me get together and just talk about it, we have no answers. There uh, are yeah. um, there are values. Just let's talk education. Teaching, you know, a guy goes through four years of school at uh, Berkeley or Arizona or whatever, um, you know, who's equipped musically and who may not be able to use that music, has really learned a lot about a lot of things. And I even have an article on my site called Beyond the Music. There are... There are a lot of things, cooperation, independence, uh, organization, uh, ability to interact with other people, blah, blah, blah. A lot, of, a lot of great things are taught through the music. But, of course, that's not the point of the teaching that, that comes as a side effect. Um, and, you know, I think a jazz education is a kind of a li- really great liberal arts education. But the practicality of it, and to a young person who's going to roll up $200,000 in debt, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... I know we're, yeah. making, we're making a living... On my side, we're making a living teaching as long as this, 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 I don't know what the word is, hypocrisy goes on or this scene goes on. I don't know how to put it. It's a, it's a, it's very upsetting if you think of it, about it the way we're talking. Well, I, I'm going to go back to something. I'm going to actually counter you and, and see how you come down on this. But, you know, from a uh, cultural uh, ethnicity point of view, uh, Max Roach, Dizzy, Miles, uh, Charles Lloyd, it could go on and on. These were Afro-American leaders. To me, it points to leadership. There's no touring circuit anymore. But if it's tr- if it's a black art form, traditionally, like you said, it was mainly black until the 70s. And you don't have leaders that are willing to push social consciousness through. I mean, you can, listen, you can go to technology and say that we're underwater and there's too much material out there. But what about the leadership of the... Other, you know, Afro African Americans, Latino Americans. I mean, to me, it was like, do they realize their roots in the music? I mean, it's not white music; it's become classicalized. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because to me, it's like there was a burning Afro quality. You look at some of that YouTube stuff with you and Perla and Elvin. I still can't get my ear around it. It is so unbelievably burning, and that was the Afro American vibe that was brought to it. I mean, where are they now? Do they even know their roots? Well, I think they're doing other things, certainly in other forms of music, for sure. And uh, they, um, I, I, I think that, you know, there are voices out there, for sure. I mean, uh, I was listening to Kendrick Lamar. I mean, you know, shit is great, you know, for what it is. I mean, it's, there are people doing things. I mean, it's just, they're not doing it in jazz. Jazz is not, uh, you don't want to, you know, you're not going to put your money on that that uh, style because you're not going to make anything for it. I mean, a lot of practical stuff here. The music is beautiful. It's been around a hundred years. It's an incredible history, and it's a living history. On the other hand, is well, how can you do it if you're going to play for the door? And it's that, and unfortunately, this becomes part of the musical uh, uh, outlook. I mean, we can't ignore what's going on with the reality of playing for the door and, and paying to play, and how the music is going to progress. How is the music going to progress if people like are going to do that? The good people are not going to do it. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen ten or fifteen years from now. They're going to. Are we still going to have this music, or are they going to say, "Look, hey, I'll do it in my basement for, for fun with friends"? You know, I don't know. I mean, no, because even you. I mean, you, you're on your on your solo albums. Uh, I mean, ECM was a European label, right? I mean, you couldn't, you didn't get. I mean, did you have? Did you ever record as a leader on an American label? Well, uh, I did have A and M. A and M Records started a line called Horizon. And uh, I did three three records with them. And of course, over the different labels, I've done you know Sunnyside, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, after A and M, that was about my biggest you know contract. 
three records, and that was it, you know. But I made my living, and my what I've been doing basically has been, you know, Europe. I mean, eighty percent of what I do is is in Europe, and that means playing with a lot of different people and a lot of different styles, which has really been great for my um, uh, for my growing as a musician. You know, I'm I'm very happy about that. That is also slowing down because of politics and because of economics. But it has been the life source for a lot of my musicians, a lot of people like me for the last 30, 40 years. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a testament. I, I was, you know, one of the L's on my show is life. And uh, what, what I mean by that is, is overcoming adversity. And I was hoping you could talk specifically about a time in your career. Could be music, could be anything where you were struggling, you were fighting it. And uh, what, how you overcame it and how it made you stronger. Well, there was a period around the early 80s. A combination of events, personal events, and health things, and so forth, uh, that made me think I should want to do something else in life. And I even took exams to get into law school, and did get into a couple schools. Didn't, didn't do it when it came, you know, came down to the deadline. But what I did do was I got more serious about education, and that enabled me, number one, as again to have a source of income besides playing, because that was, you know, that was never going to always be a steady situation for me. And the other thing was, I felt that if I could do turn one person on to this music and enrich their lives, uh, that's a worthwhile goal. So I went out and started that association. I don't know how much you know about what I do, but this International Association of Schools of Jazz, IASJ, which is now in its 26th year, and I did this in the late 80s, with schools and places where I had done workshops and put together this network that we're meeting this year at Berkeley in Boston last year. We were in Lisbon, Portugal, et cetera. Um, I feel that that's been something that's really helped me uh, feel good about myself besides the music. Because by the early 80s, I'd really done everything. I'd recorded. I'd been around the world. I'd been with Miles Davis. I'd, you know, I had won polls. I did, I did what you do. And I said, is this going to be it for the rest of my life? And thankfully, I found education, and that was really right, a very good fit for me because I'm, you know, I'm pretty verbal, and I enjoy doing it. And that became my resource and a way of really keeping myself sane besides the playing. And that's still, it's still true. So the, you were actually considering like, like walking away from music altogether and going, yes. to, and going to law school. Yes. And, but then, yes, and I would imagine that a lot of people you talk to, a good percentage have probably had that happen to them at some point. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, you know, that, is it, is it possible in Europe? Do they have these loft? Is, are there loft scenes? I mean, it seems like it's a more... I, I talk to, you know, guys that, you know, rock cats, uh, guys that play with Brian Auger. They still go to France and, you know, on the top of a hill somewhere, there'll be a jazz festival. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, who's going to show up for that? Next thing you know, 2,000 people show up. Uh, are, yeah, this, it, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Europe, you know, Europe is you know, thousands of years old. There's more respect for art. The governments give money. I mean, jazz is, again, not a moneymaker. It has to be supported. It's you know it's 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 an art form that has to be supported like classical, and uh, the governments in Europe uh, have been able to do that as they've been also to, been able to pay for health and and for uh, you know for education as we're seeing now with the, you know this campaign that we have I mean it's a big thing in America everybody's up hundreds of thousands in loans and your medical bills bankrupt you I mean it's it's completely insane and uh, Europe has been able to manage this socialistic way of looking at things and. It's been very good for people like myself because we've been able to take part in it. And it's slowly changing there also. Um, you know, there's less money, there's too many people, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, Europe has been the haven for uh, 
a lot of my a lot of people my generation and even back Dexter Gordon, Stan Getz, Johnny Griffin, even, you know, probably the ten or twenty guys we can name offhand who spent years, if not a, a good part of their last part of their life in Europe. Ben Webster, uh, Don, uh, what's his name? One played, you know, the other ten to play the old guy. I mean, they all, you know, stayed in Europe because it was much more welcoming. No, I was going to say. I mean, they well, yeah, but I mean, they a lot of those cats just got fed up with the with the racism here and, and then moved over there yeah. and, and started careers. Can you talk about the first time you played with Charles Lloyd? Well, I didn't play with Charles. I studied with Charles. Talk about the first time that you, I mean, what? I mean, I interviewed Lloyd, but, I mean, you studied with him. How'd that all come to be? Well, I had uh, heard, this is 1966, and, or 65, 66, <clears throat> and, you know, again, as we've been mentioning, there was no schooling. There was no formal way to learn this music outside of a few schools scattered around the country that were, were existing, but not in New York, and, uh, I was, of course, Coltrane freak. I mean, I hadn't seen him many times in the 60s. And I just asked around, who was the guy who sounds the most like Coltrane? And everybody said, Charles Lloyd. <laughs> and he's playing with Cannibal Adley. So I went to the half note. I went up to him in a break and asked him if he taught. And he very pointedly said no, but then he looked straight at me and said, but you can come to my place tomorrow. And that started a year-long relationship. Every Sunday I spent the day with him and his wife. Uh, he was not formal to formal lessons. I mean, music was mentioned at times, of course. But we hung out, and I was able to get a feeling of the lifestyle and of this particular guy's personality and how it fit and everything. And uh, that was the beginning of his ascent as a leader. He was just starting to, to go on his own. Um, and, uh, you know, over the, I had not seen him over the years until about three, four years ago. We had, you know, we bumped into each other. We had a wonderful dinner, and then I saw him at the Detroit Festival when I was with Saxophone Summit. And he was there with his group, and uh, he was very influential. And it was a definite period when I played a lot like him, no question about it. And they were not so, again, not so technical musical music lessons, but they were more like the style, the vibe, and stuff like that. And he did say a few things to me, going back to our earlier discussion of Zen-like phrases that made you think about them for the next thirty years. <laughs> can you, can you, can you just like, can you humor me and 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 tell me one that you remember? I, I just, to me, it's like there's a there's a Zen yeah. there's a Zen quality to the, the there's a genius quality that needs to be spoken about as specifically as possible. Well, he said once. It's the story of how it happens is not important, but it basically he said, uh, when you practice, be objective. And he was saying that don't, you know, when you practice, you're, it's a laboratory. And it's not, you're not there to feel good or feel bad. You're there to do your job, like checking in for, you know, if you work in a factory, you check in, you check out, and you put your time card in. And if you practice with, like, emotion and uh, uh, subjectivity, you're not going to get the most out of it. And that was a very good lesson because, I, of course, when I would quote practice, I would really just play. That wasn't practicing. Practicing is doing something over and over again, ad nauseum, maybe even boring. Mm -hmm. But uh, he he gave you know when he said that to me, it rang a bell because he was exactly right. He saw he saw in me that problem. So that was really very that was a good good piece of advice. You know, um, you know, for my generation and younger generations, um, as we've been talking about, uh, technically, you got. I mean, they have teachers like Dave Liebman who are you know, cranking out cats that are, have, have huge technical chops. Um, but because of, uh, I mean, you can point to the advent of the, of the drum track and, and disco and, uh, electronic music and really now uh, getting to a point with musicians where, you know, a woman could sound like crap as a singer, but they're like, no, don't worry, come up, we'll fix it. Cause you got 30,000 Twitter followers. And I, I, right. I just, I want to know from you two, two fold question. Who? How did you learn to feel the music? And 
obviously you saw Train just blowing his head off in the 60s, but can you talk about like a, a time in your career when you left your physical body on the stage? It was a tra- I mean, because there's only two letters that separate music and magic. Well, uh, I know that I could tell you about a, one concert that stands out in my my uh, life. It was um, it ties together <clears throat> present the present time at that point and culture. It was 1987 in Tokyo, and it was a memorial concert for Coltrane 20 years since he had passed. And it was with Eddie Gomez, By- uh, Richard Byrack, my partner, of course, uh, Dijonette, and Wayne. And uh, you know, it was quite an honor. It was a good, good gig. You know, it was 20,000 people. We began the melody to Mr. PC, and everybody you know, started applauding. It was like a rock concert. <laughs> and uh, in the middle of it, we decided to have a duo with me and Richie. We played Naima and After the Rain. And I remember just sitting in the the spotlight on me and, and Richie, who's my pal, my closest friend, at the, you know, then and still. And uh, just thinking, what a great thing. Here I am playing Coltrane's tunes with Wayne Shorter and Zach DeGenetti Gomez for people, in, you know, for 20,000 people getting paid well. The light is on. What an honor, what a thrill. And I think that was one of the high points of my life, I must say. You know, that was... a. Uh, because it really kind of was like a marking off, like this is where you have, this is where you arrive. You're playing your most important influence with the next guy that's on <laughs> one of your next influences, you know, right next to him. And we had a really wonderful concert. It was pretty well known. It got, you know, has been around for years now on DVD and so forth. And that was a, a great honor. And there was another one in India. We were the first jazz group to go to India in, in quite a while, maybe since Benny Goodman. I don't know what the exact details are. This was the uh, mid seventies with Lookout Farm, my first group. And we had cobblers with us, Badal Roy and Richard Byrack. Oh, I love Lisa, it. Yeah, go ahead. Continue. And Jeff Williams, yeah. And, uh, you know, when we got to India, we were first city was Calcutta, which was really grim. And uh, I'll never forget that first concert we played in Calcutta, where the people were just, you know, the vibe of the people was so serious. I mean, this was a, Calcutta was a serious place then, and still is. Um, and, you know, quite pretty dark vibe, you know, people being picking up bodies every night, stuff like that. And here we were at this part of the world, and of course, this one, 75, when, you know, it wasn't so common to go traveling like that. Here we are playing our music for these people who are so passionate and so forth, who have such a life to, to have to live in the way they live there. That was quite a moment to me. Yeah, Badal Roy, I mean, that, you, you had such an eclectic group uh, with a bunch of, of uh, ethnic percussion. Did you, can you, oh, yeah. can you, can you talk about uh, any, when you were with Ten Wheel Drive, or even with Miles, and you would go, I mean, there's some just, just you know, transcendent concerts on vinyl, you know, from the Fillmore West. And I'm just curious if there were uh, cats that inspired you, you know, that were your peers, but they might have been playing different kind of music, like, you know, horn bands from like the, the Tower of Powers or Sons of Champlin. Were there any cats that, that you actually might have, that you, that you got close with when you, when you used to gig out there with Miles? You mean close to, you mean other musicians in other areas? Well, I mean, we've talked about, you know, Richie and Jack and Holland, Lenny White, those, you know, the quote-unquote jazzers. I'm just talking about, like, r- psychedelic rock bands, horn bands from that time when you were out there. Because th- those, Bill Graham would put you on a bill with Tiny Tim and, 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 the, and the Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, yeah, I, I not not really. Uh, I didn't really, uh, I, no, we didn't have much of that going on. I mean, 
you know, if you had three, two, three acts, I mean, with the case with Miles, Miles always played the first, and then you were out of there. You, know? you just leave. I mean, uh, you would just leave. I was, you know, I, I, I enjoyed. Look, I'm Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles are part of my DNA, just mm-hmm. like everybody's. I mean, I enjoyed that music, but it was not something that I, you know, was familiar. You know, hanging around and seeing what was going on because it was another world. I mean, pop music then was, as it is now, it's a completely other ethos. I mean, it's about it's about numbers and success and crowds and you know people coming and all that and being popular and jazz is not about that so it's pretty different and you know and i you know i i enjoyed the music but i also thought sometimes you know they're getting a little more than they need. they really deserve the kind of attention they get you know but then the horn bands again were mostly a lot of cases made up of kind of jazz or studio type musicians so they were kind of our kind anyway but you talk about Jefferson Airplane and all that, that's a whole other world, you know? Well, yeah, they were just, the, the, even the rock was, there was jazz inflections in the rock. That was just so scintillating. But, you know, one final question for you, Liebman, and I really, it, it's just been an honor to talk to you. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you, Jake. But uh, what, can you define, your, just in this day and age, the callousness that's enveloping uh, the world? You talk about Europe, even the philosophies changing in Europe, the rigidity settling in in this country. Um one of the L's on my show is love, and I just wanted you to talk about your concept of love and, and how you bring love to the world. Well, I'm fortunate to have the music. Uh, without that, I wouldn't know what I would do. And uh, <laughs> okay. music is a healing healing force, and, you know, it's obvious. And uh, it, it's coming from another source, from beyond the beyond the material world. There's no question about that. From, from Mozart to, to Jimi Hendrix to Coltrane. I mean, it's all coming from the outside of our our physical beings, no question about it. And, and music especially, especially improvised music, is very specifically healing because it's in the spot, in the moment, and about the vibe that is being felt at that time between you and your audience and the other musicians. I mean, even if you don't have an audience, you have a vibe. And uh, we're very fortunate, those of us who play this music and do it for a living and are recognized enough to be able to continue. We're very, very fortunate that we can live a life like that. And you know, it's it it it's you're kind of a medicine man. I mean, we're shaman. It's shamanism. I mean, in the end, that's what it is. It depends on who and to what degree, but it's basically that's where it's at. You know, that's what we do. Well, I, I look forward to meeting you in person one day, Mr. Liebman, and uh, I hope uh, that I hope that at some point uh, we can get some sort of loft scene. I mean, I hope that there are some solutions to these questions that you and Rock Alarm sit around. And uh, but you know, I really appreciate you being part of the program, brother. Thank you, and your great questions, very different, and I appreciate your attention, and I hope some of the people enjoyed it very much. Thank you for your time. Love always. Peace. Gage. Thank you. We'll be right back on the Jake Feinberg Show.